Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on Green Earth Radio. The Weston A. Price Foundation's annual Wise Traditions Conference is now less than one week away. My final speaker in counting down to the conference is Dr. Deborah Gordon. Plus, our desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to our appetizers and find out what happened this past week in the world of real food. Advocacy groups are again attempting to overturn the USDA's decision to deregulate genetically modified alfalfa because the GMO crops are resistant to the Roundup-ready weed killer. Farmers often cover their fields with the herbicide and contaminate other plants and animals near the alfalfa fields. Center for Food Safety attorney George Kimbrell had a hearing with U.S. Court of Appeals in San Francisco where he requested the court to ban GMOs or at least encourage the government limit to u- of the use of GMO alfalfa. Kimbrell says deregulation violates federal law protecting endangered species and the environment from poisonous weeds. This legal case also reminds us of the dangers of genetically modified crops. And for residents of California, we can also alert the public as to what foods contain GMOs by voting, by voting yes on Prop 37 this Tuesday. Next... As the Northeast has been heavily affected by Hurricane Sandy, thousands of delivery trucks filled with food and headed in that area have been stuck on the roadsides and in warehouses. Supermarkets and warehouses have made some preparations before the storm, so there's not a strong chance of a food shortage occurring. But if people don't have power, then they're not likely to shop for groceries. I wish the best for the people living in the Northeast and hope that they're able to stay safe and nourished during this time. Also... A study shows that diet soda could increase the risk of leukemia in men and women and multiple myeloma and non-Hodgkin lymphoma in men. These conclusions come from findings from the longest-running, most comprehensive study on aspartame as a carcinogen in humans. This could open up for further studies to be done which find risks of other cancers from aspartames. The study is more reason to avoid diet soda as it's not the health food it's been made out to be. And finally, the United Nations published a study saying that food production is responsible for 29% of man-made greenhouse gases. They looked at emissions across the entire food system, from forest clearance, fertilizer production, and transport, and the farming. This is more reason to buy food that's local and to support mixed farming where the crops provide food for the animals and the animals provide fertilizer for the crops. And now for our main course. Over the past two months, all interviews I've done were for people speaking at the Wise Traditions Conference next week. I've talked to a variety of speakers, from farmers, authors, experts in certain fields, and people running nonprofits. Now, there wasn't any particular order to any of the speakers. This is all about when we could fit in shows with their busy schedules. Today's guest will be covering one of the most important topics, which is integrative medicine. There are many medical doctors that prescribe to the teachings of the Cleveland dentist, Dr. Weston A. Price. These are physicians that have studied traditional medicine but found that it lacks teaching us how to truly be healthy. These doctors find that it's best to incorporate homeopathy, alternative care, nutrition, and lifestyle along with the conventional medicine. Here to talk with me about integrative medicine is a physician and a medical doctor, Dr. Deborah Gordon. Deborah, thank you so much for coming on my show. Oh, thank you and for inviting me, Erin. It's a great service you provide. 
Oh, absolutely. Well, and certainly it's a great service that you provide too with your practice. So I'd like for the listeners to know a little about how you went from first becoming medical doctor to then transitioning into the practice that you do now of integrative medicine and incorporating certain things like the teachings of Weston Price and homeopathic medicine. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was a journey that was uh, circuitous, I guess, but enjoyable along the way. Uh, I entered medical school uh, in the 1975 in San Francisco, great medical school, and really wanted to learn about preventive medicine had the opportunity to work briefly with Marion Nessel. She was there at the time, and we had a tiny subversive subgroup on um, nutrition that was separate from the regular curriculum because the regular curriculum was, as all medical schools were at that time, kind of empty in the field of both preventive medicine and and really nutrition. Um, But I had a great medical training, and unfortunately, when I got out of medical school, I really had no skill, and and I did a family practice residency. I learned a lot about taking care of sick people once they reached kind of the point of no return, but didn't learn much about either gentle means to make them healthy or much about preventive medicine. So it was a few years into my practice that I encountered classical homeopathy. I went to a homeopath on on a bit of a lark, and her treatment for me, which was so simple, a single homeopathic remedy, cured uh, several, cured not only what I went to see her about, which was something recent, but cured my hay fever and my Raynaud's disease, which I actually had forgotten to mention to her, but they never came back. So that was 1983-84. I slowly started studying uh, classical homeopathy and by 1991 had opened, moved to Ashland, Oregon, uh, worked in migrant health, worked in hospitals and emergency rooms, and I opened the first really integrative practice here in Ashland, Oregon. Kind of, can I really put homeopathy on my shingle and hang it out there and... uh and I was able to do that, and I worked well with, have been working well with the medical community and patients now for, gee, 20 years, I guess, doing that. The Weston Price information, and I'd have to credit Gary Taubes, uh, came in kind of at about the same time to my awareness, uh, maybe about five, so, gee, how, how time flies, huh, Aaron? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Five, maybe more years ago, started going to Weston Price meetings, reading their journal, going to their conferences, and then reading Gary Taub's work, which really uh, pulled the kind of response to medical problems information into line in accordance with Weston Price. So now people uh, come to my practice, mostly about half of them come for classical homeopathy, but with everybody, and sometimes this is all I do with some people, with everybody, I ask them what they eat. I talk to them about what they eat. I encourage them to eat a, a wide range of healthy foods to get rid of their fat phobia and to develop a sugar phobia. And um, and I do some work with bioidentical hormones and find that that combination of nutrition, a little bit of work with hormones, and gentle medicine through classical homeopathy serves me and my patients um, really well. And um, and so, the, you know, it's in, I love to share information with people, and a lot of the information is patient-specific. If you come to me with migraines, I'll have some specific recommendations for you. 
but there's some things that are just useful information for everybody, everybody who has headaches or everybody who's just walking around. So over the last year, I put together and started a website, and so I have I kind of have a foot in both worlds for my practice, my individual patients, private practice, and then drdebramd.com, where I share a lot of nutritional information and just the common preventive medicine information that doctors know if they read the journals, but maybe don't have time to share with patients. We talked a little earlier about Gary Tobbs. Was the book that you read of his Good Calories, Bad Calories? I started with that. And, you know, if uh, you remember how it came out in hardback, I actually never right. seen the paperback, but that cover picture just, I, it just went right into my brain and my heart instantaneously. You know, butter is so good with calories. I love that. It was butter melting on a piece of bread. And, you know, when my daughter was little, I remember giving her a piece of bread and butter, and she'd come back to me with the bread and ask for more butter. And oh, I, I was, <laughs> Yeah. I, and, you know, that just shows so much, the innate human wisdom. And I was, you know, a little bit more immersed in the fat phobia of those days. It was, you know, the mid-'80s. And um, I'd say, no, no, I gave you the butter so you'd eat the bread. And now I'm thinking, she was right. <laughs> <laughs> the bread is just a... So I, I read Good Calories, Bad Calories twice, and... Just thought that was great. Did you read that when it came out? Yeah, I have. Yeah, it's a great book, and certainly then he has a follow-up one, Why We Get Fat, and also mm-hmm. I know there's the New York Times article, which I think you can find on the web, which was a very big article in it. You know, certainly those are important books, and also, of course, there's uh, Weston Price's Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. That was that took I I certainly was familiar with the Weston Price knowledge before I read his book and tackled it. Um, I don't know why, Gary Town's book was really much more daunting, but Weston Price's book is so beautifully compelling to follow this uh, very adventurous man and his wife through their global travels and to get a glimpse over their shoulder of civilizations as they deteriorated, introducing what we call modern food, which is really kind of Franken-food, kind of crazy food. So that is a great book as well. Right. And um, when did you first alert, just learn about Weston Price before learning about his and reading his book? Uh, I can't remember. I, you know, I believe it was there's a, a group of us as homeopaths who know that, you know, it's actually a little bit of a debate. It was a little bit controversial among homeopaths because we know it. Uh, my experience with classical homeopathy is if you get the right remedy, somebody's life can completely change for the better. And gee, shouldn't that be enough? And uh, but several of us became interested in Weston Price about 10 years ago, and realized that it's an important thing to share with our patients as well. You know, homeopathy came into existence over 240 years ago now, and he did. The founder of homeopathy didn't pay much attention, nor did some of the American prominent homeopaths in the early 1800s. They didn't pay much attention to nutrition, and it's. And I realized they didn't have to because pretty much anybody could, if, if they were a farmer or you know, if they weren't dredged and mired in poverty, they had access to great food 100 and 200 years ago. I, it also kind of dawned on me recently, and this is changing the subject a little bit, but I've often um, laughed that at Chi at medical school, I didn't learn anything about 
really nutrition and exercise as treatments for, say, diabetes and obesity. We just didn't learn about that at all. And I've realized in actually preparing these talks for um, the conference next week, well, there wasn't an epidemic then. You know, in the 70s when I went to medical school was when we were just shifting to our phobia of fat. And at that time, obesity was not an epidemic. We were a little bit more than our back, you know, the background level of obesity is about 15% and uh, overweight about 20 or 30%, and that's it's been constant about those numbers in the United States until about the mid-70s. So when I went to medical school, no wonder we didn't get taught about obesity because it hadn't really emerged as its own problem. And it's really been over that time since we as doctors developed and promulgated a fear of fat that people have gotten so much sicker and... Uh, I'll bet, med- I hope medical schools include, I'm sure they're still fat phobic. That, that's still a, a problem that's hard to believe people still suffer from, but that's probably, the, I think that's the number one mental uh, problem facing modern America is uh, fear of fat. Absolutely, that is a big problem. And from what I hear, it's still a problem at med schools of them not really learning much about nutrition. And one question I have related with obesity is, do you think the obesity is as big as a problem as it's made out to be? Well, I think the obesity that overlaps with type 2 diabetes is the problem. So, uh, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of a hierarchy of health where uh, it actually is better to be lean and uh, fit than it is to be heavy and fit. But being heavy and fit, and by fit I mean both metabolically, that your blood sugar is normal, that your clotting factors in your blood are normal, that your um, lipids are in a, a healthy balance, and I mean to be physically fit. To be so, there's a, a I'm a um, competitive rower with the Ashland Rowing Club in Ashland, Oregon, and there's a woman that I've uh, admired rowing for years. She's an incredible athlete. And um, a couple, up until a couple of years ago, she was always overweight. And we used to joke that, well, at least I'm, I'm not lean and fit, but I'm heavy and fit, which is the second best thing. And then she, I'm not sure what, I think a little bit, the uh, work through that I've done in the neighborhood and uh, around Gary Taubes, she just looked at her diet and said, I eat way too much sugar. And she just dropped sugar. She didn't She's a vegetarian. She didn't really start eating meat, unfortunately. Um, And she's now the highest category of health, which is lean and fit, just by dropping sugar. So the second, so below lean and fit is heavy and fit. And below heavy and fit, not quite as healthy, is, um, uh, you know, heavy but not fit really is not as healthy as heavy and fit, and then the least healthy of all is obese and not fit, and really metabolically not fit. So uh, people who carry weight do have extra weight, do have an increased incidence of certain diseases as they age, but I've looked at people, uh, I had a patient coming to mind, lovely woman that I've worked with for years, and people say, oh, her doctors have told her for years, I really worry about your weight, you know, I just see heart disease coming and all this stuff. And her numbers were good, 
and she was active and fit. And I said, don't worry about your weight. You know, she maybe carried 25 extra pounds, but it was well distributed over her body. Now, that's the key, really, answer to your question, Erin. If somebody is heavy and they're carrying it mostly around their weight, the waist, that is a risk whether or not they think they're fit. And that's a problem that affects uh, women in menopause who don't take hormones and older men more than it affects other people. So there's, you can walk around um, a rowing venue, say. I just was at a master's, uh, well, it was actually master's collegiate and kids regatta down in Sacramento last weekend. And you can see among some of these fit rowing men that they still carry enlarged abdomens. They're carrying their weight around their middle. And that is unhealthy even if their overall weight isn't that high uh, and even if they're fit, if they're carrying the weight around their middle, they're eating too many carbohydrates and not enough meat and not enough fat. And so they're going to be unhealthy for that reason. One of the problems I have with the label of obesity, specifically with the BMIs, uh-huh. is that people that are tall but can be somewhat fit can be labeled yes. an obese. Someone should just say like Michael Jordan. Yes. You are absolutely – you are stealing the thunder from my talk on diabetes. Oh, really? Week. Oh. Well. And, and I have <laughs> no, to but say... I, I'm happy – this is an important thing to share because I, I do agree BMI puts muscular people up at a risk. So really the way to gauge whether you're um, fit or not is to just compare your weight – no, not your weight – your waist circumference and your height. Because Michael Jordan would, you know, he'd excel at that comparison. You divide your waist in inches by your height in inches and multiply it by 100. And let's see if I can remember exactly where those numbers are. So women should be kind of below 50. Men get to go up to about 53. So, you know, what's, do you know your waist size? I'm not a waist size. Well, that's waist, uh, waist. So I know my waist is about 31 and my height is in inches is 68 or 69 inches. And so if I divide those um, and then multiply by 100, I get, you know, in the um, low 40s. So that's great. But um, a friend I say might have whose waist is um, 40 and his height is um, 64, say five foot four man with a 40 inch waist. If you divide those numbers down, his numbers are up around in the 50s and 60s. So even though he's muscular and fit, he qualifies as being overweight. So it's the waist to height ratio in inches multiplied by 100. And uh, I'll actually send you an email with that little chart. Oh, that would be great, it. yeah, because that's certainly. Yeah. Great that we have a much better system of of knowing it. And you'd also talked about how the lack of nutrition in med schools. What are some other problems you see with how people are trained in conventional medicine in school? There's wow, where to start? Um, <laughs> one of the problems is is the isolation of one symptom from another. So, for instance, even and and it's it pervades medical thinking. So. You know, I was asked to talk next week at the conference about diabetes. Well, I can't separate diabetes from lipid problems, from sticky blood, from weight problems, uh, and then some of the other health problems that come with it for young women, polycystic ovarian syndrome, 
you know, runs parallel with the early onset of type 2 diabetes and cardiovascular disease does and malignancy does. They're all related both conceptually and then in the person. So uh, you, the, what, how that plays out in a medical school setting, you go to a doctor and you've got, you have a problem, your doctor's treating it for you. You say, oh, you know, by the way, um, I've had some heart palpitations recently. Oh, well, I'm going to send you over to the cardiologist. That I'm sure that doesn't relate to the sugar problem you and I were just talking about. Uh, that we're gonna, you're gonna corral your sugar craving for your weight issue. But heart palpitations, oh gee, that's not related. That that's as if it's happening in a different body, and you take that different body over to that different doctor, who then says, well, I'll give you a beta blocking drug, which makes you tired. And then you go back to your first doctor and you say, I'm tired. And they say, oh, well, maybe you should go to a sleep clinic, you know. So there's the breaking people up into chunks is uh, a big problem. And the second real problem I see is that there's a drug for everything, but there's not time for anything. So no matter what complaint you have, somebody can look it up in their little book or in their brain library and find a drug to fix it but to sit down and say when did this start what was going on in your life it's, I had a an attending once in a when I was working as a student in the emergency room who said something so valuable to me he said um, you know you're gonna go in and see this patient and um, you're gonna treat whatever problem they have but the most important thing you can find out as an emergency room doctor I mean unless somebody's coming in from a car wreck spurting blood um, is to find out why they chose to come to the emergency room tonight. Because certainly they had this problem three hours ago when doctor's offices were open. Are they poor? Do they not have a doctor? Did they just have a fight with their husband and get thrown out of the house? Are they really worried about their child and so they can't sleep? Why did they come to the emergency room now? Try and put it in the context of their life. And um, I, I'll never forget that. I remember the patient whose context there was a strep throat that he had me find out why they came out tonight um, when they'd been sick for a few days. And just taking the time to do that is something that, that was a, I remember that because that was a rare counsel in my medical training. Look at the whole person. How does it all relate? How does each of their complaints relate together? And uh, how does it relate to their life? Do you think that some of these drugs really don't cure the problem? Oh, abs- oh I... Mo- that you're being kind. Most of the drugs <laughs> band-aid the problem. So, uh, you know, someone who has hypertension, oh, I can give you drugs that will lower your blood pressure just so long as you remember to take it every day. When really, if you take some of the sugar and grains out of your diet and lower your serum insulin levels, your your body will stop retaining sodium, will stop retaining fluid, and your blood pressure will go naturally down. So... Uh, if I, and I very, I mean, I, I tell people don't come to me anymore. I'm really still quite good at medical thinking and analyzing the problem that you have. But, boy, don't come to me with, to find out the latest and greatest high blood pressure drug because I don't know it. And if I give someone a drug, I'm giving it to them saying, you know, this is a temporary fix because right now your blood pressure is dangerous. But really, we have no business working together unless you want to change the underlying factors that are making it high. And uh, and 90% of the time they can do that. They can drop a few pounds. They can start doing some exercise. They can eliminate sugar from their diet. They can uh, start sleeping a little bit better. They can find some ways to do stress reduction and their blood pressure will go down. Uh, 
the drugs are should be 90% of true drugs are really just temporary band-aids for someone who's seeking good health. You know, not everybody is. Hormones are a different matter. You know, hormones, uh, they're a replacement. And many physicians are quite skilled. Chris Kresser, who I don't know if you interviewed him, but he'll be speaking at Western Price next week. And he has a lot of expertise with using hormones temporarily and really balancing things in a fine-tuned kind of way so that, if possible, bodies resume their optimal hormone production themselves. He's got an expertise in that. I, I hope to learn from him. I haven't interviewed him, but certainly I hope to get him on the show at some time. I think some of these drugs actually also make the problems worse, one which certainly has been talked about a lot in the Weston Price community about making things worse are the statins. Oh, yes. That those are you know, there's a great uh, TED video out which is con- uh, presenting the concept of number needed to treat the number of people you need to treat to make the hazards of the drug worthwhile. And he went through a few drugs and said, you know, you need to treat 30 people with this drug to get the benefits for one. You need to treat 100 people with this drug to get the benefits for one. Um, the number needed to treat of statins with statins to get the benefit for one person, that number is infinity. There is no number that you can make a case for that, well, if I just treat this many people, I'll save one life. That number is infinity for statins, and it is just for that reason that they do more harm than good. And the list of damages that they do, they weaken the heart, they weaken all muscles, they break down muscles, they cause depression, and they don't treat the proper uh, lipid problem. So, yeah, they are hazardous drugs. And there was a great presenter about that last year at the conference, and uh, Stephanie Sheff, I think is her name, and I think she's presenting again this year, um, whose own husband was put on statins after a cardiovascular event, and she worried and, as a Harvard researcher, really looked into it and said... Even you, honey, you're in the best category of optimal advantage for statins. Even you, they do more harm than good. There's also a great documentary about statins. It's called Statin Nation. Oh, I've never seen that. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because I don't see it getting a lot of attention. Um, Maybe just people haven't heard of it. I've been certainly promoting it to my local Weston Price chapter. And it's one Mm -hmm. where it's all available online. You can just – you can either – pay to download it and own it, or for a little less, you can just pay to to watch it online one time. And it talks about, one, the whole cholesterol myth and interviews Malcolm Kendrick, who wrote The Cholesterol Con, and also interviews Natasha Campbell-McBride. It's it's a British Mm -hmm. documentary. And so she talks about also, for those who don't know, Natasha Campbell-McBride, she's the author of the book on the GAPS diet. And it's really a great thing and talks a lot about the whole problems that statins cause, including someone who was a physician and she found her problems getting worse when taking statins. A wonderful thing. Again, the address for it is statinnation.net, and I urge everyone that listens to this show to watch it. One of, I think, the most interesting things they talked about in it that scared me the most was how because of the statin industry – They've started to say that above 200 uh, for cholesterol is bad when it used to be above 250. Oh. Oh, 
That's cr- and, and there's pretty there's great statistics that show that women live the longest whose cholesterol is between 200 and 250. Uh, but as you, I'm sure, know, and, and probably a lot of your listeners do, the, the absolute, the total cholesterol number is, is almost meaningless. And there are a lot of different measures you can get to that come closer to actually approximating cardiovascular risk, which does show up in, in some of the cholesterol numbers. But um, triglycerides are a much more important number than total cholesterol. And then actual uh, LDL small particle number which people can only get through specialized testing. Uh, but the total cholesterol number is kind of meaningless. And, and people throwing, you know, the and the people want, a lot of physicians want people's LDLs to be as low as possible. I had an argument with a physician saying, you know, what do you think about, what about the depression? What about the muscle aches? What about the weakness and fatigue? And he said, I said, you know, his cholesterols, a hundred are down to a hundred. Uh, you know, wh- why are you raising his statins? Because he, he was. This was someone who I was trying to mediate with a physician unsuccessfully. Finally, I was successful with the patient, but he was on statins. His LDL was a hundred, and he wanted to raise his statins so he could get his LDL down to fifty. You know, and I ah, oh, that's crazy. That is. Well, certainly, we'll talk about this more. I like to get more into the triglycerides when we come back. But first, here are some words from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products, hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products, that's www.organicsproutedflower.net or toll-free 877-401-6837. Wise Traditions Conferences bring a world of nutrition information to the health professional and health-conscious consumer. And the conference meals and exhibit hall reflect our dietary principles. Join us this September 15th to 16th, Buffalo, New York, for our second regional conference, or November 9th to 12th in Santa Clara, California, for our 13th annual international conference. Learn and grow in wellness. See more details on westonaprice.org. Perry Pure Eco Rag Industry is an eco-conscious clothing line. Designed and manufactured in Los Angeles, Perry is dedicated to sustainability by using certified organic, eco-friendly, and reclaimed fabrics and using low-impact dyes in its solar-powered facility. The Perry collections are inspired by the changing colors and moods of nature. A portion of all sales go to organizations that support the health of our oceans and seas. We're now available at Gray Boutique in Silver Lake and Unica on Melrose, or shop online at www perrythelabel.com. And for listeners of The Appropriate Omnivore, you'll receive 45% off all items when you use the code OMIN45. And we're back. My guest is Dr. Dr. Deborah Gordon, MD, and we've been talking about the myths of cholesterol and the problems of statins. And Deborah has also mentioned about how the most important thing is getting your sugars down and having low triglycerides. So why don't you first explain what triglycerides are? I think that's a word that 
unlike cholesterol, where everyone is familiar with it, a lot of people might hear that word triglycerides and wonder, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a good question. And uh, they, it is, if you, you know, if you just get a finger stick somewhere at a health fair, they may just tell you your total cholesterol. But anytime you get anything resembling a lipid profile ordered from your doctor, you'll get oh, four or five numbers. You'll get the total cholesterol. You'll get the HDL and LDL cholesterol, which are considered the good and bad cholesterol, but that's an oversimplification. And then they'll get the ratio between the total cholesterol and the HDL. And then the last little number they'll throw in there is the triglycerides. And what triglycerides are is uh, they're not the cholesterol in your blood. They're a, a molecule that is Uh, created after digesting carbohydrates. It's a way of transferring carbohydrates with uh, some fatty acids as carrier molecules because um, to carry them to the parts of the body where they're needed. So if you eat a high sugar carbohydrate meal, one of the real reasons they have you fast before a lipid test is because the triglycerides number varies wildly depending on how recently you've eaten carbohydrates. So if you just sit down and eat a steak, that won't really affect your triglyceride number significantly. If you sit down and eat a steak sandwich and particularly have some French fries and a Coke with it, the Coke, the potatoes, and the bread will all be carbohydrates that when they go into your uh, when your digestive system senses that a lot of carbohydrates are coming, they send the word down to the pancreas and say, we've got to get ready because there's going to be a, a low... Those all get broken down from digestion into simple sugar, glucose, going in your bloodstream. And if that's too high, that's diabetes, that's a problem. So your body tries to figure out what to do with that glucose. And one of the things it does that's such a ready easy marker in the blood is create triglycerides so they can carry those sugars away to the body's cells and store them as body fat. Right after a meal, they go up tremendously and then they settle back down to the base, to their baseline. And although conventional medicine considers them normal, that level normal up to 150 or 200, really anything over 100 shows that on a chronic constant level, you're body feels a little bit threatened by the amount of sugar in your blood and so it's hooking it up into a triglyceride a three sugar molecule with a fatty acid backbone and sending it off to the cells to be dispensed with unfortunately for you as a fat tissue so it's really a measure of the sugars that you've eaten that are going to become the extra inches around your waistline and I like to see it below 100, and if it is below 100, and even I like to see it as low as possible, is fine. There's no hazard to it being lower, except in cases of starvation or advanced disease where really people are wasting away. Then that's ev- they'll show that evidence in the triglycerides. But uh, you know, if somebody says, "Oh, gee, I, I had a finger stick," I'm, I'm actually going to be doing finger sticks for those who want them at the Western Price Conference, and people can check their either their glucose or their ketones if they come by my little booth. I think it's just going to be a little table set up somewhere for me to do it. You know, they say, oh, I got a random blood stick and it was 115. Should I be worried? Uh, Oh, and here's my lipid numbers and my triglycerides are 80. Well, there's no way you can be a diabetic and have a, a triglyceride level of 80. 
80 just means there's never that much sugar flooding your bloodstream, so you can't be a diabetic. And that blood sugar reading, there's a lot of reasons someone can have a random blood sugar be a little elevated, um, and 150 isn't even elevated. But triglycerides are a great chronic marker of the carbohydrates that you eat. And the principles in Sally Fallon's book, Nourishing Traditions, certainly in a lot of ways I'd say is low carbohydrate, low sugar. There are certain types of carbs and sugars that the Weston A. Price Foundation recommends in moderation. I mean, one for grains specifically, it's if the grains are either sprouted, um, such as like baking things with sprouted flour, or right. another way is fermentation, such as sourdough bread. And then there are natural sweeteners that they recommend of things like sucanat, Rapunzel, coconut sugar, maple syrup, molasses, uh, stevia, honey. What are your thoughts on those alternatives? That's where we get, uh, so, you know, the answer is a little bit different for all of them. Um, Grains, certainly, if anyone's going to be eating grains, they should be eating sprouted grains. And so do do I think everyone should be eating sprouted grains? Well, I don't think everyone should be eating grains. Uh, For someone who is leaning in the direction of either a serious weight problem or type 2 diabetes, uh, even sprouted grains, which are not as inflammatory to the gut, which is important and that's good, even sprouted grains can carry too many carbohydrate calories when really that person needs to fill themselves up more on healing fats, the fats that are listed in the previous or following chapter in Nourishing Tradition. So those people shouldn't be having grains. And then there's a fair amount of people who shouldn't be having, who can have some grains, but they shouldn't be having wheat. They should be looking for rye or some uh, other kinds of grains because they have a gluten sensitivity. And gluten sensitivity, uh, as I'm sure you're aware, is much more prevalent now than it was 50 years ago because we have, I think, 25 times the amount of gluten in our modern wheat as we did uh, 50 years ago. And so people have, and that modern gluten, that excessive modern gluten, has created reactions to it. So if there's gluten sensitivities of varying degrees. So if I have someone who has a mild gluten sensitivity, and there's a lot of different ways to determine that that is the case, they might be able to go off all gluten for six months or a year. Then they might be able to reintroduce it, but I would suggest to them that they seek out those uh, vendors who sell heritage wheat, who sell the wheat that is uh, still shoulder high and what we used to have when we had amber waves of grain, you know, in this country. Instead of now, we have wheat that's really grown for the harvester and the combine. It comes knee-high, and it's great for the combine, and and it's bad for its consumer for some people who have gluten sensitivity. So a lot of people have a temporary gluten sensitivity, and even they can go back to wheat um, uh, when they've diminished their reactivity to it. So sprouted grains are good for people who don't have health challenges with wheat, with uh, weight or, or type 2 diabetes. Those, those sugar, uh, my favorite sweetener is actually um, maple syrup, which has a horrible sugar profile for someone who has a weight or a diabetic problem. And all the others they suggest are, are really better for you than white sugar or certainly high fructose corn syrup as well. And then, you know, there's there's lots of vegetables that fall in the sweet category that are problematic for obese people, like excessive amounts of cooked root vegetables. 
and then there's uh, even some of those can be, you know, it, it becomes individual. So we have people on a low-carb diet who have to incorporate some starches or they go kind of physiologically crazy. They have to have a little safe rice or, or a starch and perhaps even some of the um, grains or legumes if they're well prepared the way Weston Price would have advised. Um, and other people can't eat those at all or they put their weight back on. Their, their weight gain comes right back around their middle because they still have such um, insulin resistance. So it, it becomes individual. There, the Weston Price's discussion of what makes foods gentler for the body we're creating doing no harm, which I think is supposed to be my motto as a physician, but eating foods that do no harm and then provides sustenance, great wisdom in the Western Price uh, tradition about how food should be prepared. But for some people, because they haven't been eating perhaps that way or perhaps genetics or perhaps they've just loved the sweets too much, need to back away from even those safe, do-no-harm foods and eat a diet that is uh, actually in calories predominantly a fat diet with moderate protein and very low carbohydrates and and limiting those to um, vegetables and and some of the starchy vegetables. So that's a long answer to a good question that we could talk about for a couple hours. Oh, sure. I mean, I know it's a long question because I know I brought up a lot of different examples. So I think you did a good job of giving the kind of abbreviated overall view of it. In terms of nutrition, how much do you think that makes up for being healthy? Uh, You know, uh, it would be interesting. I I think in percentages, usually really easily, and that one doesn't come to me. But it's certainly around 50%, if not more. You know, I can't deny genetics and I can't deny lifestyle. Those are are also really important. But I would give nutrition around 50%. What do you think? I think that makes sense. I think nutrition is a big part of it. And I mean, I've talked to, you know, even people like in the exercise field, um, you know, that like Tom Legath, he was on my show a few months ago. You know, his big thing is, I mean, exercise. He owns a gym and is a personal trainer um, and certainly states the importance of it. But he said, actually, while exercise is important, actually nutrition is is more important than that. And certainly he makes that a big part of his practices, not just training people in exercise, but getting them to eat the right way. Well, you know, that's another uh, profession that needs to be woken up into the 21st century. My daughter just trained as a certified personal trainer, and she actually writes a blog on my website. She's really good. Her name's Anna Rose. Um, But in her personal training certification, she was taught to promote low-fat, a lot of grains, a lot of legumes, a lot of fruits, uh, low meat, lean, lean meat, and and I have a a saying that to just because it pushes a red button for me when someone says lean meat. When someone says lean meat, I translate it into okay. I know what they really mean is that I should eat pasture raised, organic meat, and I should eat all the fat I want that comes with mm-hmm. that meat. <laughs> and I'm just not going to go into this. Anyway, her training is such that she can only advise people, her clients to eat in a way that she doesn't eat herself because she's right on board with everything we're talking about, you know, high fat, moderate protein, low carbohydrate. But as an ACE personal trainer, she can't pass on that advice without going and getting certified as a nutritional uh, 
advisor with a completely different you know set of initials after her name. So a lot of personal trainers are still on that low fat, uh, lean protein, high carb regimen that doctors are on. That is a big problem. Fortunately for me, there's someone in Southern California in Pasadena has a gym called Reflex, and all of the trainers there they all actually recommend a a high-fat, low-carbohydrate diet. I mean, they've even started a weekly meal plan where you get some great pastured meat and some vegetables. There's no grains or sugars of any sort. So that's well, that great, Jim. Yeah. Oh, it's it's wonderful. And I mean, I've gotten to meet a lot of the trainers there, and it's it's wonderful that they all recommend that to their clients. And I mean, I've heard that they've even gotten a couple people off of being vegetarians. Oh, that's a... <laughs> I have a, a quasi-vegetarian patient who I was telling, now you've got to try some more bacon. It's the gateway meat, and uh, you know it'll get you back into eating meat again, uh, like a gateway drug. Gateway meat is bacon. And <laughs> she uh, saw that T-shirt, which I think I was actually wearing at the time, and she sent me a, a little text picture of, uh, you know, have you seen that Praise the Lard t-shirt yes there's a lot of great ones i know there's also the one i'd be a vegetarian if bacon grew on trees <laughs> and so what do you do you also do a workout at the gym i mean i do think some for i like how mark sisson describes uh what exercise is optimal you know not sitting at a desk all day which i unfortunately do i think i'm going to create a standing desk in my new house. I'm going to stand up right now. Those are very big in in the office where I work. A lot of people now are having standing desks. There's this one guy, he'll make them for everyone. Oh, great. Yeah. So it's good to stand up or move around, walk around a lot. And then a couple times a week, you should do something really hard. And I think he says, you know, move around all the time, twice a week, run for your life. And once a week, lift something really heavy. Uh, as an optimal exercise. And I do think a lot of people miss that twice a week. Do something that really, uh, if you want optimal help, uh, and I get down on the floor and show people interval exercise right in my room. I have a big room, a pretty big room at my office, and I'm saying, you know, you need to do some interval exercises, and here are some squats you could do for 20 seconds or 30 seconds in an interval routine. And Here's some, uh, you can do a push-up against the sink counter if you can't do one on the ground. And, you know, here's how you do a sit-up. And uh, you can do that in your own home, and you don't need to take two hours and go to the lake, much as I love to do that. And and that's a great way to, if you have an exercise you love that you do outside, that you do with other people, that's the best. But anything that really has, you know, part of our human capacity is to do physical activity with a fair amount of intensity and it does a wonderful bit of fine-tuning our hormonal balance and I think is keeps us youthful. So do you do something like that? I do, yeah. I mean, I do a lot of exercise at home. I mean, it's it's great. I mean, I actually do like uh, a lot of uh, sit-ups and push-ups during the day. I found that just great, doing like 100 sit-ups and push-ups every day. Uh, <laughs> a great every thing. day? <laughs> I try to. Some days, if I'm busy, I, I fall short on that, but that's that's a goal I try to set is is doing all that just like you know in like you know in four or five intervals during the day. Um, uh-huh. It was something actually I learned you know pretty early on like uh, back in back in high school when I was doing sports. It was it was advice that I got, and I mean it's really it's a thing where certainly I mean gyms are good because you have certain equipment they can get there, and I think there's also a thing that when you belong to a gym, you know you're committed to it because you're paying money. But yeah. there's some ways which just the world can be your gym. 
That's right. That's a wonderful attitude. Now, Erin, you must be, uh, you know, so there's a lot of people, I'm just going to have to say, because I, 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 I think so much that people have to tailor these things individually. For most people, doing something very intense, which 100 sit-ups would be for almost anybody, they shouldn't do that every day. You know, that they will actually stress themselves and um, create high cortisol levels, and then they'll gain weight, and they'll age faster, and things like that. So, uh, twice a week, I tell people is enough, and probably four or five times a week might be optimal and only really fit athletic people. So you may be one of those people because you've worked up to it, can push themselves to exercise to a high intensity six or seven days a week and not and to be able to do that and stay in good health. So that shows me you're, you're, you must be quite fit for that to work for you. That's good, or at least I'm you know, trying to, uh, to get fit to... Uh by doing that um and i know some people really get more fit if they take a day or two off a week and really let their muscles recover and then and then you know go out hard the next day and sometimes sometimes you find oh a day of rest not two weeks of rest (laughs) but a couple a day or two of rest sometimes makes your muscles stronger it happens with that yeah and so i mean you know sometimes if i have a really busy day i won't always live up to that and i can usually get back into it the next day. Um, mm-hmm. I know in addition to, uh, to the workout you do, cause I know you had talked about how, um, say you do rowing. Yes. Yeah. I know also, um, another thing you do in uh, spare time is, uh, you raise uh, chickens and ducks. <laughs> I do. I'm just looking out at them right now. We have a big backyard where, uh, and we have 15 chickens, um, and don't ask me if the old ones are still laying because I hate to discuss that in front of them. I think it hurts their feelings because I don't think they are. Uh, and then we have uh, five five ducks, and we have wild ducks coming through. Um, so we get the eggs, and uh, in the summer we're looking for people to take some eggs off our hands. And you know, right now it's the fall and the winter, so the girls are are working a little bit less hard. I, I do love having a little bit of a mini farm. It's been an interesting thing with this speaker series that I've had because, you know, certainly I've had some farmers, so obviously they have they raise a lot of animals. But there are a number of people I had on my show. I had an attorney who also runs a nonprofit organization, the Farm and Ranch Freedom Alliance, Judith McGeary, and she also has a farm. And I had Rachel Kaplan, who is an urban homesteader, and she raises chickens as as part of her urban, urban homesteading but i mean her full-time job is actually a family therapist and i think it's <laughs> interesting because some people say you know i don't have the time to uh to garden or to raise animals and here i've had several guests that certainly have you know established careers that i'm sure they keep them busy and they're able to find time also to raise some backyard animals yeah um we've got the uh let's see the Pork in my freezer comes from a ranch that's run by a nurse practitioner and an OBGYN doctor, and they have a ranch and sell uh, pork and goat. The beef in my freezer, no, it's the lamb in my freezer, comes from a physician, a pathologist who has a full-time job who raises um, lamb sometimes and beef all the time we get from her, and uh, and my salmon in my freezer comes from uh an Alaskan fisherman, but yeah, uh, it, it is interesting. A number of the people around here who 
they have another job, but they do a little bit of farming on the side. And, you know, Joel Salatin is a great one for saying, anyone who has kitchen scraps can have chickens. Mm-hmm. You get a couple chickens. I don't know what the laws are like where you live, but families uh, here are allowed to have not as many chickens as we have. <laughs> We're a little bit over the limit, but... Uh, you know, fam- every family around here can keep chickens in their backyard if they want to. Do you know? Are the Do you know what the rules are where you live? You, you're in Pasadena. Uh, well, right outside Pasadena, I live in Highland Park, so city uh-huh. of Los Angeles. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure what the laws are. I mean, because I know some people certainly in California have backyard chickens. I'll have to look at the rules as far as how many you have to have. You're allowed to have. Because mm-hmm. tip, you know, most of the year they lay an egg a day, so. Um, two people, two to four chickens, depending on how many eggs you eat. And, you know, that's a, the, the couple food myths that I love breaking down for people who really love food um, but have been living under doctor's prescriptions for too long. I like to tell them you can eat as many eggs as you want, and I'd actually rather have you eat more of the yolks than the whites if you were going to break them up that way. And I do tell people not to eat raw egg whites um, fits in with another one of my little pet peeves, which is I I don't think people should drink their meals. I'm not a smoothie advocate unless it's a smoothie with a meal because I think chewing is what we're meant to do. But I tell people they can eat as many eggs as they want, which always makes people happy. And when people, uh, I tell people I'm a nose-to-tail kind of person, you should be eating some way or another, getting advantage of the whole animal that you've asked to give up its life for you. Um, they should, people should eat liver and particularly liver is a great part of the body to eat of the animal's body to eat, to avoid or treat early diabetes because it just provides so many vital nutrients. And so I tell people, you know, if if they're new to liver, they can go buy chicken livers and mix it up with, mix them up, fried chicken livers with butter, mix them up and blend them. And they've got chicken pate that they'll love to eat, and it's good for them, and they can have as much of that as they want. So eggs and chicken liver pate are the two foods that people get reacquainted with if they're, if they're in my practice for very long. <laughs> well, Deborah, it's been great to have you on our show. I have to go to our desserts in a second, but um, for listeners, they want to learn more about you. They can go to www.drdebrahmda.com. Deborah. Thanks for coming on the show. Got to go to our desserts now. Thank you, Aaron. Great talking with you. So for the desserts for this week, a lot of big stuff coming up. First, on Tuesday of this week, that's November 6th, you can have the chance to vote for yes on 37 and make sure that all GMO products are labeled. And if you're interested in finding out about some other events, if you want to do some last-minute campaigning for it, go to carighttoknow.org. Also, of course, the big event is on this Thursday, November 8th in Santa Clara. There's the annual Weston A. Price Wise Traditions Conference. Go to www.westonaprice.org for a schedule of the events. And that's all for this show. Um, Next week, because it's the Weston A. Price Conference, I'll be off. But in two weeks, I'm going to be back with Victoria Block. She's the West A. Price West L.A. chapter leader. We'll give a recap of the event. And to find out more about the guest today, my news stories, and events happening this week, visit my blog at www.appropriateomnivore.blogspot.com. 